I don't know what you said, but we're having All right, go ahead. Psalm 119, verse 65. Basket. Surround. Contain. Mud. Do good to your servant according to your word. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your command. Before I was afflicted, I was I went astray. But now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Good deal. Wonderful. Okay, let's see here. We have April 7th today. Is that right? Yeah. No, today is 11th. Oh, I'm still looking at last week's thing. April 11th. Here we go. All right. He fought for another kind of victory. Although a convicted abolitionist, D.L. Moody did not enlist in the Union Army during the Civil War, claiming there has never been a time in my life when I felt that I could take a gun and shoot down a fellow being. In this respect, I am a Quaker. My grandfather, my, his whole side were Quakers. In his adopted city of Chicago, he helped to establish the city's YMCA as his first full-time employee. Yearning to teach the Bible, he went to the streets looking for children and street people to fill his Sunday school class at the North Wells Street Mission. By 1861, he was working full-time in both Sunday school and the YMCA, supported by Cyrus McCormick and others. When the Civil War broke out, Camp Douglas was established in Chicago. Seeing the need to hold services there, Moody helped form a YMCA Army and Navy Committee and led daily services at the camp. At Camp Douglas, thousands of Confederate soldiers were interned, Union soldiers were constantly coming and going, and new recruits were gathered and instructed. Moody ministered to as many soldiers as he could. Among the new recruits were a large number of Moody boys. On Sunday and Monday, April 6th and 7th, 1862, the second great battle of the Civil War and one of the bloodiest, the Battle of Shiloh, or Pittsburgh Landing, was fought in southern Tennessee. The Confederates lost 10,700 soldiers, while Grant's army lost 13,000. Over 100,000 were wounded. An emergency call went out for extra doctors, nurses, medical students, and volunteers. The news reached Chicago on Tuesday, and Moody quickly volunteered to be on the trainload of help dispatched from the city, arriving at Pittsburgh Landing on April 11, 1862. Moody recounted his words. We were taking a large number of wounded men down the Tennessee River, a number of young men of the Christian Commission were with me, and I, I told them that we must not let a man die on the boat that night uh, without telling him of Christ and heaven. You know the cry of a wounded man is, water, water, as we passed along from one to another giving them water, we tried to tell them of the water of life, of which they would drink, uh, if they would drink, they would never die. I came to a man who had about as fine a face as I ever saw. I spoke to him, but he did not answer. I sat down beside him and he gave and gave him brandy and water every now and then. I said to myself that I could not let him die without getting a message for his mother. Presently, he opened his eyes and said, yes, you are on your way home, but the doctor says you won't reach your earthly home. 
I thought I'd like to ask you if you had any message for your mother. His face lightened up with an unearthly glow as he said, oh yes, tell my mother that I died trusting in Jesus. It was one of the sweetest messages I ever heard in my life. Dale Moody did deliver the message to the soldier's mother, and he made eight more trips to the front lines during the war. Dale Moody was a pacifist, but that did not deter him from ministering during the Civil War. What is your attitude toward war? Do you believe that wars are that there are just wars? Uh, Romans thirteen four. The authorities are established by God for every for the very purpose to punish those who do wrong. Oh, there you go. Uh, hard to read stuff like that. How are you feeling? It's so good to have you back here. She fell last week, couldn't get up, and been on a walker, and uh, came in on a cane. Praise the Lord. All right. We're, in, we're happy now. He's, I came by to see you, and you were asleep, so he said, you may be coming, so good to have you here. And along with them, we've got some prayer requests. A uh, guy I grew up with, and... Uh, just this morning, Tony, he's uh, emailed me. He says he's got bladder cancer surgery today. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're going to check that out and keep him in prayer. Darla has had all kinds of problems with her jaw and her teeth. It's very bad. She's depressed. She's, you know, obviously in pain. And uh, I can't even imagine, as we were talking about, once it's in your head, you can't get away from it. It's just there. So keep her in prayer. And then I got a request uh, not a request, but uh, I was noted that Lisa wants to move to a more favorable location. So we want to keep her in prayer about that. And uh, Jill and Judy, a couple ladies that attend online, one of them is looking, they're both looking for a job. One of them had a job interview today. We'd want to keep them both in prayer. And then uh, I haven't seen Darlene, you know, who's her mom is, you know, old and she's got to take care of her. And, uh, so I keep Darlene and Arlena in prayer because I know it's tough on them. And then uh, uh, one more thing to kind of add to our prayers and just to uh, let you know about is the Superior Word Church in Kenya. I told you that they needed $13,000 to buy the land that has a building, but it's not a great building on it. And they got all of the money necessary to build, to buy the land. So that is done. And That's then amazing. they, it is amazing. That was by believe it or not, just a few people that did that. I mean, it was a couple very large gifts that were sent over there to them, but that's done. And now we want to pray that they would have enough to build a decent building because it's what they have is just really insufficient. And then, you know, Isaac, who's uh, in Uganda, is always posting stuff. If you look online, you always see his stuff. And I was looking through his photos today that he just posted on my Facebook page. And He's got pictures of what he's been doing, a ministry to giving people decent clothes and pictures of what they came to his organization like literally in rags, just rags and leaving with beautiful dresses, colors. I mean, just it's like a sea of colors, all of the people together in there. So I'd like to pray that they would be able to continue to keep that ministry going. And he, he helps them in every way. I mean, he's always... Pig farm project, and he's got growing projects, and he's got clothing projects, and he's got building a school for the children. Just now, he said that they're getting the children into uh, Bible classes. And so, keep those two, uh, the Kenya and Uganda ministries, in prayer because they do a lot more than I think probably 99% of all churches in America combined they're doing over there. Uh, uh, Pastor Silas's church over there in Kenya, twice now they've taken a week off just to pray just to pray. 
about their uh, buying the property. And I emailed them and, are you okay? Every day I'm emailing me because I hear from them every day. And then all of a sudden I don't hear from him. Finally came back and he says, oh, we've been praying for a week. So and it was effective. They got enough money to buy the land. So praise the Lord for people like that. We'll pray for all of those right now. Heavenly Father, you've heard the prayer requests and there are others which are not coming to mind right now, but uh, you know each and every one of them that's out there and that we people have emailed me with prayer requests and in my failing, I didn't write them down today, but uh, you know who they are and we just lift all of them up, all of the needs, all of the thank yous and all of the many blessings that uh, you've provided for your people around this world. And we would continue that your, we would pray that your continued open hand of grace would be seen and realized uh, until the day you come for your church. And until then, we'll just keep looking to you and thanking you for every good thing that comes. And Lord, we just also pray for the lost in this world that uh, definitely need you, that they will uh, open their hearts, call on Jesus and be saved through his shed blood. We thank you for that, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we ask you bless this time here in this service today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in... Uh, Romans 7 verse 17 but before we get to our first verse I just want to say I, I'm so miserable You're a book behind. Uh, I'm sorry 1 Corinthians 7 17 yeah thank you I do that I, I look at one thing and I have dyslexia of the book um, uh, the Israeli spacecraft did not make it they, they went around the moon they uh, uh, I was live with Sergio and uh, they went around the moon they started to descend and they lost control of it. They regained it, and then they lost it again, and the time went by, they know that the thing is gone. So, very sad, but they got a great picture just before the thing crashed, 16 kilometers up, right over the moon, with the, uh, you know, the flag of Israel. It was a very good picture, so it was an expensive picture, but they, uh, I, I just want to let you know that was a very sad thing to, uh, sad thing to see, but, uh, Anyway, 717, 1 Corinthians 717. Oh, that's right. Get get things done here on this planet. Uh, I'm going to back up a paragraph. Uh, wherever you want. To enlighten me, so I'll start with 15. But if the unbeliever believes, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to, watch, and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down all churches. Okay, this was a little different. It, it, it's the same concept. It, it, he uses the uh, terminology. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Walking in, in Pauline uh, terminology means to conduct yourselves properly or improperly your walk of life and so I ordain in all the churches so just a small difference there uh, the words now issued by Paul reach back to cover the preceding six verses from 10 until 16 and at the same time they are an introduction to other concepts which Paul will comment on in verses 10 and 11 came the Lord's command concerning marriage that it should not be terminated through divorce then in 12 and 13, he noted that the believing spouse was not to depart from an unbelieving spouse, and he gave the reason for it in verse 14. I will tell you that this past week, I got more emails and comments 
people asking clarification or saying, I'm so glad to have heard that. And, you know, not my commentary, just the fact that they know what the Bible says now. So, I'm, you know, anyway, mm -hmm. but obviously this marriage issue is very important to people, even if they're not married and they want clarification, they want to understand what's going on. And uh, it was really nice to be able to get all of those emails and to be able to uh, hear people's uh, thoughts on it and, you know, the few things that needed clarification, no problem. And there are probably things that we'll talk about here. But, um, you know, to me, I would have thought that this would have been one of the quietest areas of all. And yet here I, I was really surprised. And then I kind of thought, well, I look at things differently. I don't know why. I just do it. I just ex didn't expect that. So anyway, when people have questions on this type of an issue, let me know. Um, don't hesitate to ask. After this, he qualified the marriage arrangement by saying that the unbeliever, if he or she wishes to depart from the marriage, should be allowed to depart. These are the thoughts which are included in the all-encompassing, but God has distributed to each one. In other words, the position that one is found in when they became a believer was so chosen by God for that time in their lives. It was not unknown to him, and he understands the details and the complexities of the situation. Because of this, what he has allowed should remain. Thus, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, are Paul's words. This phrase means that we are to remain in whatever state we were in when we were called. We cannot say, because I'm now a Christian, God would want me to leave my unbelieving spouse. Incorrect thinking. Nor can we find any other excuse to be disobedient to his word because we're now in Christ. All right. If we're in Christ, we should be more obedient to his word, not less. Okay. But people will try to find reasons for anything in this world. Rather, he selected the path that we are on and we are to walk it regardless of the weight of the load upon our shoulders, because it really is no true weight, which we bear alone. Instead, it is one which Christ shares with us. From this stepping stone, Paul will continue with this line of reasoning in the verses ahead. And, you know, I said that to my friend Tony this morning. You know, I can't remember the exact uh, verses I sent him, but, you know, there's a time in your life where you're worshiping the Lord, you're praising the Lord, and now it's time to lean on the Lord. You know, you've got bladder cancer, you need to lean on the Lord. And don't be anxious. I tell everybody the same thing. Be anxious for nothing. I'm one to talk because I'm the most anxious guy in the world, but... But uh, yeah, you know, the Bible says don't be anxious for everything and it's not going to change anything. If you have a problem and you're worried about it, it's not going to change anything to being worried about it, right? And when you get to the end of it, either you're going to live or you're going to die or you're going to get divorced or you're not. I mean, whatever happens, it doesn't change anything by being anxious and worrying. The only thing it does is it stresses you. It causes you gray hair, which I've got plenty of that. I don't need any more, but um, you know... It, don't be anxious for anything. Just cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. For now, though, he shows that what he is telling the Corinthians is not arbitrary or suddenly enacted by him. Rather, the instructions he has given are consistently applied elsewhere as well. As he says, and so I ordain in all the churches. Since the writing of the epistle and because it is included in the canon of scripture, it is set and it is fixed. It is a part of God's word, and thus we are to be obedient to it, just as obedience was expected on these matters from those in Corinth. It doesn't make any difference if it was written to the Corinthians. We are here as a part of this church, same as he wrote it, because God has included it in the Bible. It is our marching orders. Okay, so life application. As believers, 
We can't use the past as an excuse to get out of our present situation. God has directed our steps, which led to the moment we called on Christ, and he did so knowing the baggage that we brought along with us. In his wisdom, he has placed us where we are for his reasons. So let us accept our state with gratitude and work within it as faithful servants of Christ. I will love you, O Lord, my might. The Lord is my rock and my fortress too. He is my deliverer through day and night. My God, my strength. Him I will trust all my days through. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, it is he. I will call on the Lord with elation. He is worthy to be praised now and for all eternity. Um, just so you know, I got a new shirt on. It yeah, smells really good. Jerusalem. Is that the um, airport um, pregame? Uh, no, they don't have an airport in Jerusalem. So I have no idea. All I know is that this came from Mary when she was in Israel, and I just smelled it, and I said, oh, I got to let them know. So I don't know what JSM is, but I will say that if you look very closely, the USA is the heart of Jerusalem. There you go. <laughs> Okay, here we go. 718. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Everybody got that? That's pretty clear. I talked about... How many questions you get on that one? Yeah, exactly. Well, before I even give my comments, I'll tell you that I mentioned that in the sermon, right? Is that the law of first mention on Sunday. I talked about the law of first mention during the tithing sermon. Okay, that's another, I got quite a few comments on that one too, but the law of first mention, and um, one of the things I said was that everybody would have to be circumcised, because it says specifically, you and all your house be circumcised on the eighth day, and if it doesn't happen, you're to be cut off from the people, okay? Well, that's the law of first mention, which is no law at all, because Paul just right here and in Galatians specifically says, don't do this thing. Okay, he will explain why in Galatians, but he says right here, let him not be circumcised. There's no such thing as the law of first mention. Um, somebody called me about that uh, sermon today. Very confused. He said, I've been told my whole life that I have to tithe. He says, I don't understand. What are you saying to me? I felt like saying, just go back and watch the sermon six or seven <laughs> times, okay? Pay attention to what I say, because, but I didn't. But uh, I talked him through it as best as I could, but... You know, he named a couple of the people that he watches on TV regularly, and he said they beat tithing into him. And he says, you know, I told him you shouldn't feel guilty about these things. That is an incorrect doctrine. It is a wholly false doctrine. As I said, New Testament preachers get in the pulpit and they preach grace, 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 until they get to tithing, and then they take you back to the law. Absolutely crazy. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, in the previous verse, this was noted. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. In addition to the verses which preceded this thought and which pertain to marriage, Paul now gives other real-life examples of what he means, beginning with circumcision. To the Jews, circumcision was the sign of the covenant and a sign of being the covenant people. It was first given to Abraham in Genesis. Anybody know which? 17. Very good. I knew you were going to say that. That Burke, he's right on top of the ball. I'm going to take you there really quickly, just so you can kind of get the, uh, the gist of what's going on here. Genesis 17, and I should have had this ready, but anyway, here we go. Genesis 17, and then in verse uh, 
Let's see here. 14. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way from 17.1 all the way down there. But um, I just want, that's the last verse of that. So it just says circumcised here, are the directions. And then the last one, if you don't do it, you'll be cut off. Okay. So throughout the history of Israel, circumcision continued to be used as a standard by which the faithful were measured to those Jews or proselytes to Judaism who came to Christ and who were already circumcised. Paul directs, was anyone called, uh, yeah, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be uncircumcised. It might be that some converts to Christ may have been anxious to do away with the badge of their previous life in Judaism and to go to a surgeon in an attempt to change what had been previously marked upon them in this way. Paul said that this shouldn't be considered. Rather, he is asked to remember that as the Lord called him while circumcised, so let him walk in that circumcision. Now, it seems crazy. How can you be uncircumcised? But believe it or not, they have documented history that the Jews during the time of the Greeks, the Hellenic Greeks, so that they didn't look like outsiders would have themselves uncircumcised because they went into these gymnasiums where they would all, you know, have the bathhouses and stuff. And they didn't want people to know that they were Jewish and observant too. So they actually went and became uncircumcised. They, you know, cut it in a way that would hide that fact. And so it is something that people do. And that is what Paul is referring to. He's not just saying, you know, something that is yeah. impossible, but I'm, it's actually something that they did. Okay. So, and I can't even imagine if it's painful to be circumcised, I can't imagine what it would be like to do the opposite, but especially back then. Especially back then. Yeah. Flint knives ready. Um, so, uh, let's see. Ah, oh. anyway, they say though, that Flint knives are actually healthier than stainless, you know, the knives we use today because they don't hold the bacteria that steel does They're uh, Yeah. They, they have proven that using Flint knives was actually a very, a very effective way of using uh, for surgery absolutely um anyway just that's something i read some time ago um okay so and the reciprocal is true as well he next says was anyone called while uncircumcised let him not be circumcised for those gentiles who were coming into the faith paul now gives the amazing words of release from this ancient rite by stating that their condition at the time of their calling was of higher importance than that of the right of circumcision. To understand this, it needs to be remembered that we are saved by grace, by grace through <clears throat> faith. Thank you. To attempt to earn God's favor through circumcision would be to set aside the grace of God in an attempt to be justified by the works of human hands. Paul spends much of the book of Galatians explaining this and calls such attempts out as heresy. Not bad doctrine, heresy. And to those who require such things, he notes them as heretics who proclaim a different gospel, which is not another. That's Galatians 1, 6, and 7. Rather, it is something which is accursed. A couple people after the uh, dispensational uh, teaching I did a couple weeks ago emailed, and they said, I don't quite understand the difference between a heresy and bad doctrine. Bad doctrine will not keep anybody from being saved. Everybody got that? Bad doctrine is bad doctrine. When people say, oh, it's a heresy because you believe in a mid-trip rapture, that's crazy. Rapture has nothing to do with salvation. It will never have anything to do with salvation. Even if it's taught wrong before a person is saved, it's not going to keep them from salvation. It's just bad doctrine, okay? 
Heresy is something that will keep somebody from being saved. Okay, in the hyper dispensationalism, when I talked about that, who will it keep from being saved? Jews. Jews. It has nothing to do with Gentiles. They preach well on the Gentile side of it, but then they insert something which is wholly false. And as a matter of fact, we got a friend that's maybe watching right now. He might be asleep by now, but he's over in Israel and he's a Jew, right? Did he have to repent and be baptized in order to be saved? One gospel for all people. That is all there is to it. So heresy is something that will keep somebody from being saved. Okay. You can be a heretic and be saved. Okay. Just because you're teaching something that is heretical does not mean that you're not a saved believer. So we have to keep our boxes straight. But a heretic is somebody that needs to be called out and they need to be corrected in their false doctrine. Okay. A heresy will keep somebody or all people by their doctrine from coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. I will give you an example so you understand this. If you come to Jesus Christ, somebody says, you know, Jesus died for your sins and that uh, he was buried and he rose again, according to scripture, you're saved, right? Everybody got that? When that happens, you are saved. But if somebody says, do you know that there's a man in Israel that was, that came and he died for your sins, but he was not born of a virgin, okay? They're told before they receive Christ, he is not born of a virgin. Okay, that person will never call on a true Jesus because he has had something inserted into his theology which says that this is not the God-man. Everybody understand that? You don't need to know about Jesus or Mary to logically be saved. Okay, but if you are told a false Jesus, you will not be saved. Okay? But worse yet, Jesus came, he died for all our sins. Right. <laughs> Period. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. If, if he like, came and he died for your sins and he did not come out of the grave, then he isn't the God-man. That's exactly they, right. They don't put the final period on it that you have to believe. If you don't believe... Oh, that's right. That's exa You have to believe. That's right. right. So to just present the gospel, well, I see what done. you're saying. We're yeah, done. we're done. You, the saved. people we're have saved. to receive. <laughs> they have to believe what God did in Christ. That's right. So just because somebody uh, is given the gospel... If they are given false information about Christ before they're given the gospel, this is not the God-man, in other words. He's not a member of the Trinity. Any of those things which are necessary to believe, then they won't be saved because they believed in a false Christ. But if they, in fact, uh, are just given the gospel and then told bad doctrine, that's a different story. Everybody got that? Okay. Heresy will keep somebody from being saved. That's what you need to remember. Okay, so anyway, um, uh, I've said that, Galatians 1, 6, and 7. Life application. Let us again consider Paul's words. As the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Did you have a tattoo when you came to Christ? If so, don't let somebody bully you into thinking that you must have it removed. Did you eat pork before you came to Christ? Don't let anyone tell you that you must stop now. There are things which should be changed, but there are things, those are things which are explained in Scripture. Those things which are not mandated to be changed are the things which we are at liberty to keep just as they are. I had a conversation with somebody just this past week about uh, you know, we are saved by grace. We are not under the law of Moses. To reinsert the law of Moses is heresy. Everybody understand that? Because you're saying you are now dependent on the law of Christ. But there are people out there that say, oh, yeah, you're saved by grace. But you should still observe the commandments because and then they always quote the same thing. If you keep my commandments... You will, yeah, that's right. Okay. 
What is he talking about? Is he talking about the law of Moses? Not at all, in any way, shape, or form. But that's what a lot of Messianic congregations will do that. They will suddenly insert that, you know, if you really love God, you're not, you're not saved by keeping the commandments. But if you really love God, you would keep the Torah. Well, once again, we've just seen with the example of circumcision that that cannot be true. Because Paul has just told us here, and he'll tell us all the way through the book of Galatians, that you are not to be circumcised. So keeping the Torah in any way, shape, or form leads you immediately back under the law. And that is what Paul warns against. So do not let people take verses out of context and say, see, if you really love God, you'd be observing his commandments. Yeah, you would, but it's not the commandments of the law of Moses. It's not speaking about that. Why? Because Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, it is finished. He's speaking of the law of Moses. It's done. Okay, you've got to get your theology right or you're going to spend the rest of your life wondering, did I please God enough? Even though you think, oh, I'm saved by grace through faith, what am I not doing to please God? You're not doing anything to please God with that attitude. Zero. You are doing nothing to please God with that attitude. Put away the law of Moses. You don't have to wear the the seat uh, seat on your talit. You don't need to uh, worry about eating pork. You don't need to eat. But once again, how many of them that say, you shouldn't eat pork, walk around with seats on their garment. None of them. So they're picking and choosing what is and what is not appropriate. Do not let anybody ever put you under that bondage. Because if you think I have to do one thing under the law of Moses to make God happy, keep his commandments, such as not eating pork, you're obligated to all of them. That is all. It's one and all or none. Okay. Good luck with that. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Oh, 719. Circumcision is nothing. Nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. There you go. Okay. Exactly what we were just talking about. When they say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he just says, keeping God's commands. And one of the commands under the law of Moses or in the Old Testament, even before the law of Moses was circumcision, then it can't be talking about that body of laws. It cannot be. Because if it was, then Paul is a heretic and we have the wrong direction in our life absolutely false. Don't let people sway you. Keeping God's commands means what is given for us in the new covenant in Christ. And that is it. Okay. Uh, the confusion that reigns over this verse in the minds of some is immense. This is verse 719. Paul could not be clear in the first half of the thought. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. For the believer in Christ, it makes absolutely no difference whether one is circumcised or not. As seen in a previous verse, almost the entire book of Galatians deals with this one subject, which is used as the premier example of the law of Moses, circumcision. It's not even used as the premier example of faith in, of Abraham. It's used as the benchmark in the law of Moses, because if you're not circumcised, then none of the other laws matter. Until you get circumcised, you're not in any way, shape, or form a part of the collective of Israel. But they had two requirements to become a member of Israel. It's in Exodus 13, I think. Does anybody know what those two requirements are? Circumcision and observing begins with the P and ends with Passover. That's right, the Passover. Linda got it. Okay, so there you go. Um, those are, that's it. If you were willing to do those two things, then you were brought into the covenant of Israel. What's that? Never mind. Oh, okay. Anyway, so um, circumcision is nothing um, and uncircumcision is nothing. It makes no difference at all. Okay, 
So um, he dealt with that. I read that. Okay, it was given by God to Abraham as a sign to the covenant people, and the mandate is repeated in Exodus and Leviticus. However, it served its purpose and was fulfilled in Christ. We've talked about it a million times. Circumcision was simply a picture of Christ. That is it. That's the only thing that circumcision was. It was a mark on the covenant people. By this they will know that you are my people. It is a sign to you, etc. A sign is always something that represents something else. Anytime you see a sign in the Bible, a sign represents something else. It's not the thing itself. It's representing something else. The sign was that you are the covenant people. You are going to usher in the Messiah. And when Messiah came, he fulfilled the picture of circumcision, which is cutting the sin nature because sin travels from father to child. Okay. And so he fulfilled that. It is done. All right. Mention that almost at the end of almost every sermon that we do. Circumcision is a picture of Christ. That's all it is. Now, whether one is a Jew who is circumcised or a Gentile who is not, once again, going back to hyperdispensationalism, no difference. No difference between the two in the salvation process. Zero. Um, there is no difference between the two. The circumcision has no bearing at all on their status before God because a believer in Christ is circumcised in the heart. In the heart, Romans 2.29. The external rite is fulfilled and thus set aside in Christ. However, cults, aberrant teachers, and those who run ahead without knowledge still mandate this right and thus promote a false gospel. As noted, it could not be clear, and yet the waters get muddied. And this leads to the second half of the verse, which can likewise become muddied, both by those who mandate circumcision or even by those who understand circumcision is no longer required. Paul says that keeping the commandments of God is what matters. The obvious connection of the commandments of God to circumcision should be made. When, when, uh, when was circumcised mandated? In Abraham, but it was mandated again, I'm talking about for the Jewish people, in the law of Moses, right? It was to Abraham as the covenant people, but then it was codified in the law of Moses. Is circumcision still required? No, he's just said that. Therefore, keeping the commandments of God cannot be speaking of keeping the law of Moses or any part of it. Does everybody see that? That is absolutely as crystal clear as it could be could be, and that is what I had said even before we started analyzing this verse, and then you read this verse. You cannot pick and choose the laws in the law of Moses that you will and will not observe. If you want to observe one to please God, then you must observe them all. And if you observe one, Christ profits you nothing, okay? It is not speaking of the commandments of the law of Moses. This is the force and intent of Paul's words now and is, as noted above, the meaning and purpose behind his words in Galatians. If circumcision is used as a benchmark of the law and circumcision is set aside in Christ, then all of the precepts of the law of Moses are set aside elsewhere or are set aside in Christ. This is stated explicitly in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10, and both explicitly and implicitly elsewhere. It is one, annulled. Hebrews 7, 18. Two, it is obsolete. That's Hebrews 8, verse 13. And three, it is taken away. That's Hebrews 10, verse 9. Four, it is wiped out, taken out of the way, and nailed to the cross. Anybody, where is that? Wiped uh, out, taken Colossians. away. 
Colossians chapter two, two verse 14. Thank you. There you go. Who said 14? Some, oh, the doctor did. Good job, doctor. All right, Colossians 2, 14, okay? And elsewhere, five. Elsewhere in multiple statements explicitly and implicitly. It is done. It is finished. It is over. So what are the commandments of God? If you, if you love me, you'll observe my commandments. What are the commandments of God that Paul is speaking of? They are found in Jesus' words, which are directed to believers after the cross, not those directed to Israel under the law. They are, the, they are also found in the prescriptive verses of the book of Acts, which make up a very, very small portion of that book, a very small portion, possibly no more than 5% and probably much less than that. And finally, they are found in the New Testament epistles. That is where they are found. 99.5% of all prescriptions are found in the New Testament epistles. These in particular are doctrine for the church based on the fulfillment of the law of Moses by Christ. To reinsert the law or to pick and choose portions of the law, such as mandating circumcision, no eating pork, observing a Sabbath, and so on, is to set aside the grace of Christ. And it is another gospel, and thus it is heresy. Thank you. We must trust that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and that his work is sufficient to save us wholly and entirely. And yet, we must also understand that his work in salvation does not give us license to sin by ignoring prescriptive elements of the New Testament. For example, women who preach, I bring it up from time to time, violate the New Testament law based on Paul's words to those in Corinth and also his words in Timothy. 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 and 12. This is an example of what Paul is referring to here. It is a willful disobedience of what God has shown that he expects of New Testament believers. So one, we are not under the law of Moses in any way, shape, or form. We're not under any law, okay? Because by having law, you will then have sin imputed, okay? We are not under law, but we are still given commandments that we are to obey. If we don't, then we are not being obedient to the Lord, and we are not loving of the Lord. If you love me, you'll do my commandments. It has nothing to do with losing losing your salvation. It has everything to do with being pleasing to God and also rewards and losses after your, or when you stand before the Lord. That is it. <clears throat> anyway, life application. If you allow yourself to be circumcised in an attempt to meet the standards of the law, the Bible says that you have set aside the grace of Christ and have become a debtor to the whole law. As no one can fulfill the law, it is a self-condemning act. This is true with any precept of the law fulfilled by Christ. Don't be led astray by a false teacher who boasts in works of the flesh and negates the glorious work of Jesus Christ. Or anybody that says, well, you know, you don't have to really to be saved, but you should because it's loving of God. They've completely taken that out of context, as we've seen with this verse right here and elsewhere. Okay, 720. <clears throat> Each one should remain in the situation which he was in God called. Okay. This verse is a repeat of the thought given in the second half of verse 17, which said, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. He's been speaking about circumcision and has said that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Then this came after his words that those who were circumcised when they were called should stay that way. And those who were uncircumcised when they were called should likewise stay that way. His thought now in verse 20 is given as a confirmation of this. 
Whatever was our calling when we were called is where we are expected to remain. In order to show that this is not limited to circumcision, but that it is an overall precept to show that we are acceptable to Christ in the station of which we were called, he will give a new example in the coming verses, that of slavery. Shouldn't it be obvious that if Jesus accepted us in a certain condition, that we must thus be acceptable to him? Right? Think of it. I'm doing something, and I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about something which is contrary to his word, but he calls me in a certain state. I'm a slave. I'm a millionaire. I'm a whatever. He saved me in that condition. Why would I change that condition? He called me as married, even to an unbeliever. Why would I change that condition? Once again, I'm not talking about anything that violates what he would have for us in a holy and right way of living. I'm talking about things that are our normal state. Are you a plumber when you were called? Then stay a plumber. There's nothing embarrassing about being a plumber. You make a pretty good paycheck. You don't have to work real hard, right? Hey, there you go. If you're whatever, I was in wastewater for years after being called. I never felt bad about it. In fact, I love the job. I'd go back to it tomorrow if it wasn't for preaching. I, it's a great job, okay? Whatever you do, if you're happy with it, if you're content, stick with it, okay? God has accepted you. Okay, so um, uh, where am I? Uh, okay, read that again. And yet many, oh yeah, let me just start at the beginning of the paragraph. Shouldn't it be obvious that if Jesus accepted us in a certain condition that we must be acceptable to him? And yet many then spend the rest of their walk with Christ trying to please the one who already found them acceptable. In this, they forget that the grace is grace. And so they attempt to find justification in their own personal works and not in the work of Christ. It's a sad cycle which can lead to neurotic believers who waffle in their convictions and are always worried about losing the eternal salvation that they have been granted. If it's eternal salvation, as it says in the book of Hebrews, then you ain't gonna lose it. You shouldn't have to worry about losing it, okay? But it's very profitable. You got somebody in a church that tells you that you can lose your salvation and I will keep you on that straight path. Guess what? Those people are going to be in the bondage and they're going to be there making sure that they do everything that that preacher says just to make sure that they don't lose their salvation. What a neurotic life to live. What an absolutely neurotic life to live. It should again be noted that remaining in the calling in which one is called does not refer refer to abusive and forbidden lifestyles referred to in scripture. One cannot say I was called as a homosexual and therefore I can remain a practicing homosexual. This is what we are called from, not to. A person who is called from circumcision, I'm sorry, a person is not called from circumcision. This is the thing that they already possessed, which is not contrary to New Testament doctrine. Freedom in Christ never means freedom to sin. Okay, life application. I'm just choking over here today. I don't know why. If Christ is the end of the law, then let the law be ended. Don't reinsert precepts which will only bring you into bondage and mental confusion. Okay, verse 721. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Okay, Paul now refers to the second major issue tied up in what he said in verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. This second issue is slavery. He asks a question of those who are bound in slavery. Were you called while a slave? 
Slavery is something that has occurred throughout human history and has come in different forms from complete bondage and absolute rule to simply being owned by another, yet with various freedom, various amounts of freedom, but without pay for the work which is performed. The Old Testament deal details provisions for slavery, how certain slaves are to be treated, and the rights which slaves bore within the context of Israelite society. In the Roman Empire of Paul's time, a large portion of the population were bound under slavery, and it was as common and as accepted as the general paid labor force that we have in the world today. The difference mostly centered on the amount of freedom offered to slaves. In coming to Christ, the individual slave may feel that his allegiances are now confused. He or she is bound to a master, and yet they have committed to Christ. This might have brought about a level of concern or anxiety concerning their position. Everybody got that? I'm told that Christ is my master, and yet I've got a human master. What do I do? And he's worried about it. And Paul is here to clarify that. And we can do <clears throat> the exact same thing with our theology with a job. Okay, I'm beholden to my, my employer. What do I do? All right, I'm beholden to, I'm in China, and what's his name, Mao Zedong? I'm beholden to him. What am I to do? All right, so be it. All right, the only thing that we are not to do, anybody know what I'm thinking of here? We must obey God rather than men. Absolutely. Other than that, there is nothing that says that we are, ah, oh, thank you very much. There's nothing that says that we, I have divided allegiances by having a master that is a human or an employer that's a human or anything like that. I'm sorry to do this, but give me just a second. Ugh. Yeah. Oh boy. I'm dying here. I don't know what's the matter with me today. Um, let's see here. So, um, yeah, might've been a level of concern or anxiety concerning their position. His question is to their state when they were called, when they called on Christ is to show them that there is no true complication in the matter at all. If they are slaves now, as he writes, and they were slaves when they were called, then there currently is no change in their state. Christ called them while they were in servitude and they were accepted by him. And so he understands the dilemma they feel, which is to him no dilemma at all. Because of this, he continues with, do not be concerned about it. If Christ wasn't worried about it, then they shouldn't be either. The allegiance that they have to him is one that will not conflict with the allegiance they have with their own master. They are to remain obedient to their rightful owner and what he expects. A good example of this actually comes from the Old Testament. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. A Syrian officer, his name is Naaman, came to know and call on the God of Israel. But he also had allegiances which bound him to his master. This caused him a bit of anxiety as to what he should do when he had to accompany his master into the temple of Ramon, where his master would worship. He asked Elisha the prophet for a pardon concerning this matter. The request and the response are found in 2 Kings 5, verses 18 and 19. Here's what it says. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. This is Naaman speaking to Elisha. When my master goes to the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Jesus is looking upon the hearts of his faithful, and he understands the difficult position that they are in concerning worldly responsibilities. As he has called us, so, we may, so may we continue. But 
with a different heart and direction concerning him. However, at the end of Paul's words today, he gives this final thought. But if you can be made free, rather use it. What he means is that if a slave can free himself, then there is absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. In the Roman Empire, like in Israel, there were provisions for obtaining freedom. One could buy their freedom or earn it in various other ways. Paul told them that despite their being called as a slave, nothing bound them to remain as slaves. But if they did remain as slaves, there was nothing wrong with that either. Today, this is comparable, as I noted earlier, to changing jobs. If you were a lawyer when you were called, there's nothing wrong with changing one's profession. The principle which is being laid down is one for peace and contentment in the state one is in, but not necessarily being firmly bound in that state. Life application, there's nothing degrading in menial labor or even bondage. If the Lord calls you in such a state, then how can it be considered degrading? You have been given the highest honor in all the world. Whatever lowly position you think you're in is only in your mind, not in his. To him, you were a member of his family and in a high and exalted position. 722. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Oh. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. Well, there you go. That's why my email is a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ. Absolutely. In the previous verse, Paul said, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. That may seem uncaring about the plight of the slave unless one understands the freedom of those in Christ, even if they're in bondage to another human. In exchange, in an exchange with the Jews of his time, we read these words from Jesus to the leaders of Israel in John chapter 8. Here's what he says here, John. What's that? Um, 8 verse 31. If you got it, read it. I got it. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. That's right. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, anybody? You are free indeed. Absolutely right. The premise of the Bible is that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Because we are in our father Adam, we inherited his sin. That's why the importance of last week's discussion was, we went into great detail on it. Is because we are all born into sin. It is a part of our nature, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Nothing. We are there, and that is it. Further, we eventually come to the age where we commit our own sin on top of the inherited sin in our lives. And because of this, we are in bondage to anybody? To the devil. We're in bondage to the devil. Yes, death is a result of it, but we are in bondage to the devil. Where is that absolutely explicitly stated? 1 John 3, anybody? 8, 3, 8. Good job. Let's go there really quickly. 1 John 3, 8. If you get there, read it real loud. What's that? He caught it. He got, I, I was surprised. He who sins is of the 
devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, what did it say in Romans 3.23 that I just read? All have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. Therefore, all people are in bondage to the devil. The devil. That's it. If you are an Adam, you are in the devil, and there is nothing you can do about it. You were conceived in it, you were born in it, and you will die in it without Jesus Christ. That is what it teaches. And that's why John 3.18 says that those who don't believe are condemned already. Absolutely right. It's explicit. I didn't make this doctrine up. That is right in the Bible. 1 John 3.8 is a verse that every person should remember. Because when you're witnessing to somebody, and they're going to ask you eventually, what are you talking about? You say, you know, you're a slave to sin. And slavery to sin is bondage to the devil. You are of your father, the devil. That's it. Jesus was explicit, and then John carries through with it, and he says, this is the reason why the Son of Man was made manifest, or was manifest, is because of exactly that. So He didn't climb the Jews uh, when they said we were never in bondage. Well, yeah. they, they were in bondage two or three times there. That's right. You know? That's Well, they were in bondage to the devil. They were in bondage to the law of Moses. They were on it. Uh, they were in bondage to Egypt, which pictured our life of sin. That's right. Being brought out of Egypt is a picture of being brought out, redeemed from the power of the devil. So there you go. Egypt means in Hebrew, anybody? It's the word Mitzrayim, double straits. You're not just in bad shape. You're in double straits. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what the picture is making there. That's why he picked that particular place, double straits. But once in Christ, we have been freed from the devil's power. He was a cruel and harsh taskmaster. Christ is a gentle, loving savior. Thus, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. That's why Paul says, don't worry. If you're a slave, don't worry about it. If you can get your freedom, go ahead. That's a good thing. But if you can't, you're the Lord's freed man. You're freer than your master. Because he's still in bondage to the devil unless he comes to Christ. If he is, then he'll talk about that later. Serve him double honor, right? Because now he is your brother as well as your master. And then he'll talk about it in the book of Philemon. All of these things just keep making the same patterns again and again and again so that it gets through our thick skulls, okay? Regardless of the burden of being bound to a human master, it is nothing in comparison to the freedom that is found in Christ. The earthly master may have temporary say over the earthly existence of the believer, but Christ has eternally set those in him free from a much greater bondage. 1 John 3, 8 again. Building on that, Paul then says, likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. In other words, we are all slaves in some way. Who's your master? Who, is, who are you setting your allegiances to? Nobody is truly free to act in complete independence. Nobody. Not even atheists, believe it or not. They think they are, but even though they think that they're free, they're slaves to death, aren't they? Because death is coming. It's right down the road for them. They're slaves to the mechanical world, the mechanical universe, and everything. that It, it doesn't matter what they think they're free from. They are slaves. Okay? Plus, they're slaves to even that which they don't know that they're free slaves to. Yes? On everything. There is a limit on everything. There's nothing that we are completely free from. Yes, sir. Does this work? <clears throat> the only freedom any of us have is to choose that to which we will be a slave. Yeah, that's that, we, the only freedom that anyone has is, say that again, to, to choose, choose 
to which we will be a slave. That is exactly right. Very well said. The only freedom that any of us has is to choose to which we will be a slave. I choose to be a slave of Christ. Very well said. Therefore, in Christ, the slave and the one who is free are actually on the same spiritual level. We are not bound to, we are bound to his laws and the freedom that we have in him is equally shared regardless of our fleeting time on earth. In this then, a complete sense of contentment should be shared by all. In Christ, we have all been freed from the power of Satan and we are all slaves of the one who created us, redeemed us, and has complete and eternal control over the endless future which lies before us. Life application. If you feel the weight of day-to-day -day trudge and toil because of your work or because of those who are appointed over you in some way or another, imagine what it felt like when we were under our previous president. It was a daily trudge for me. I don't know about you all, but I felt it every single day. It was like being punished every single day. Hey, you know what? It's nothing because Christ has redeemed us from this world. We have to live through it. It stinks. It's just like going to the job that you hate and you can't stand the employer that you have, the boss that you have, the working conditions, whatever it is, it's temporary. Okay, Christ has redeemed us out of this world. It will all be behind us someday. Oh, your freedom, if you can use, yeah, that's right. Uh, and we'll get to that. It's uh, what she said is that uh, uh, if you can get, gain your freedom of 21, we'll read that. Hang on one second. Oh, we're getting there next. Yeah, we'll be there next. Anyway. Oh, no, you, we just said that. 20, we, that was 21. And yeah, if you can get your freedom, then use it. That's right. So that's where we were. What's that? Absolutely. If you're a slave, use that. And if you're free, use that. It doesn't make any difference. 100, 100%. Okay. So, um, Nobody is truly free to act in complete independence, okay? So, um, in, in Christ, we have all been freed from the power of Satan, and we are all slaves of the one who created us, redeemed us, and has complete and eternal control over the endless future which lies before us. Life application, I've already read that, haven't I? You did. Um, yeah, okay, well then it's, it, yeah, it's time for 723. You were born out of Christ, not become slaves of men. Okay, this verse isn't saying what many, what may intention, let me read that again. This verse isn't saying what may initially come to mind when it is read. What it sounds like is that because we were bought at a price, meaning the finished work of Jesus, which included his cross, that we are now his, and so we shouldn't allow ourselves to be sold into literal slavery as bondservants of another. However, this is not what is being referred to. Let me read that again. That's uh, verse 23. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. What I just said is not what it's referring to. Rather, the idea of being a slave that Paul is speaking of would be yielding to unnecessary rights and customs, which a false teacher or non-believer might impose on them. Everybody got that? A non-believer imposing something on you. As slaves of Christ, we are under his ultimate authority. We have been granted grace and are freed from the constraints of both the law and of the world around us. We are to live as slaves to Christ. If we allow ourselves to fall back under the law or to be swayed by those who reject or manipulate the gospel, we would be brought into a form of slavery from which we had been brought out of. 
Paul explains this in a concise statement found in Ephesians 4, verse 14, where he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Everybody got that? He's speaking here about being brought under slavery or bondage of some other type that we've already been brought out of. We have been brought into the freedom of Christ, and now somebody's trying to get us to go back under the law of Moses. They're trying to get us to observe a Saturday Sabbath. They're trying to get us to do something which is contrary to the gospel of Christ, the freedom which is found in Christ. If we fall into their trap, we are making ourselves a slave to a far lesser authority than Christ who redeemed us. The pulpit commentary gives an excellent explanation of this verse when they say the following. They say, there is a grand play of words in the advice to them not to become slaves at the very moment when he is advising them to continue in slavery. In that which the world called slavery, the Christian slave might enjoy absolute liberty. The price which a master paid for them was but an unmeaning shadow. They had been bought once and eternally by an infinitely nobler price, and that purchase was the pledge of absolute emancipation. Again, the words of Paul in Galatians 5 verse 1 give another beautiful rendering of the thought he is making when he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage which makes us slaves of men is speaking on a spiritual, not on a physical level. The yoke of bondage is explicitly what? The law of Moses. That's right. It, that is explicitly what he's speaking about. The heavy, burdensome yoke of the law of Moses. We're going to actually see that. Guess what? Oh, I didn't write it down. We're in Numbers 19 verses 1 through 10 this week. Anybody know what that is? It's the only word that rhymes with it is Zephyr. That's right, the red heifer. We'll talk about the yoke of bondage right in those verses right there. Marvelous stuff, pictures of Christ all over. And then we'll have a, a Resurrection Day sermon, and then we will finish chapter 19 after that. And that is just as astonishing, if not more, in the second half of those two, two uh, sermons from chapter 19. Really wonderful that stuff. very clever. Yeah, very clever of me, the red heifer. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Life application. <clears throat> the greatest freedom we can ever possess is to be found as a slave of Christ. To enjoy the fullness of this freedom, we must read, learn, and apply what? The Bible to our lives. That's right. If we don't do this, but rather trust in the doctrines of men, then we are putting ourselves back into bondage. As I said, my friend watches sermons with a couple of people. He calls me and he says, I don't understand. I've been told all along I have to tithe. He says, that's what they teach every single week. Well, that makes sense. They're teaching every week because they want to make sure that you give your tithe to them, right? Whatever. All they've done is taken that man and put him back under bondage. That's all they've done. They've put him back under bondage because that is not a precept that is found in the New Testament. It is not something. We went through that in detail. If you didn't watch the sermon, go watch it. You'll understand even if we think we are following a path of freedom and ease, we are in bondage. Read your Bible, keep its precepts in context, and apply them to your life. In doing this, you will truly experience the fullness of the life that Christ desires for you during this earthly existence. Let us no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about 
with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men who rave and shout in the cunning craftiness of their deceitful plotting let us their wayward tricks be a spotting and let us speak the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head christ our lord above let us in his doctrine immerse ourselves and swim let us walk let our walk be acceptable in his sight let us always follow the noble path the one that is just and right 724 brothers each man is responsible to god should remain in the situation god called he keeps repeating the same thing doesn't he? he keeps saying that he wants to make sure that we understand what he is saying this verse is somewhat a repeat of verse 17 and it covers the entire thought from verses 17 through 23 in essence paul is saying that whatever state one is called in is acceptable and that there is nothing wrong with remaining in that condition whether one is married or single a slave or a master or whether they are circumcised or uncircumcised there is nothing in the christian faith which they have accepted that would ask them to change that state in this though there is nothing which condones a lifestyle which is contrary to the christian message in other words if someone's lifestyle was contrary to what is expected of a christian that is not included in paul's words here i'm sorry it's not if you were a drunkard you need to give up being a drunkard if you were gay you need to be, give that up etc all the way through anything which is contrary to a sound christian walk only those things which are neutral or those things which are set aside in christ such as circumcision fall within the parameters of these words we are not granted license to continue in the life of sin which we were engaged in when we called on jesus we are to conduct our walk side by side with the Lord and in harmony with his expectations, but not fearing that we must change our state now that we are in Christ. Life application, let us walk confidently with Christ, knowing that he has accepted us in the state in which he called us. If we are poor and drive an old car, we're just as acceptable to him as if we are loaded with money and had a large house and many possessions. What we possess is not what is important. Our faith in him and our adherence to his word, however, is worth much in his sight. 725. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give the judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Okay, based on the opening words, now concerning virgins, we can infer that this begins another section of answers to questions addressed to Paul by those in Corinth. You get the logic there? He just suddenly breaks his thought and he goes on to another subject. It's obvious that they had written him and they had said, what about this? What about this? What about this? And what about this? Okay, this is one of those sections. This is based on his opening line of chapter seven, which said, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So this is another one of those things. The question which begins in verse 25 is about virgins. What is it that a family with young virgin daughters who are coming of age should do with them? Should they keep them in an unmarried state? Should they allow them to be married? And so on. What should they do? His response begins with, I have no commandment from the Lord. That shows you right there that he personally received his instruction from the Lord and he's being honest. I wasn't talked about this at all. 
I mean, it is just as plain as it could be that this guy is on the level and that what he says is absolutely true because nobody would say that otherwise. He'd say, oh yeah, the Lord told me, like preachers do in the pulpit every single week. You hear all, all the time on TV, you walk into some churches and, oh, the Lord told me. You hear they so flippantly say things like that, that it's just, it makes me neurotic just hearing that type of thing. Paul was very direct. I have no commandment from the Lord. He didn't talk to me about this issue, but I'm one that I think can answer you logically. And obviously he could. Why? Because he did and it's recorded in God's word. If God didn't want this in his word, it wouldn't be there. So the Lord approved of Paul's thought process. Now, having said that, why did the Lord pick Paul? Because he was fully Jewish. He was fully Jewish. He, he was passionate. He was multilanguaged. He was a Roman. He was a Roman citizen. He was trained in scripture. That's what I was looking for. But all of those other ones are absolutely as well. He was a man perfect for the job. He was able to handle abuse. He was able to handle being without food. He was able to uh, get through the Roman Empire freely. As he noted, he was a Roman citizen. He spoke many languages so he could appeal to people in their own language to set standards, which would be recorded in the Bible. Paul was the perfect person. If you just... Read the Bible through one time and think, why did he pick this person? Why did he pick this person? Why is Peter given the epistle when Matthew wasn't? If you just think through and you, it all becomes logical. The Lord knew exactly. Peter was a failing person. He was weak in his constitution. He was somebody that couldn't stand up for himself. And yet at the end of the Bible, he writes the epistles showing that God understood. He's a failing person, but I'm going to use that for my glory after Paul's epistles for the Jewish people. So they understand the connection. Everything God did, every single thing he did was perfect, especially that Paul was trained in the scriptures. Those other guys were not. They were trained in Jesus. They followed him. They lived with him. They understood him, but they didn't understand the law. And without, and they had some understanding of, don't get me wrong, they sat in synagogue and they listened to the Psalms and, you know, it'd be like going to church for 20 years. Just because you go to church does not make you a theologian. You have to be trained in it. You have to know the word, okay? And so Paul had what they did not have. He had an additional understanding of scripture that they didn't, okay? I have no commandment from the Lord. There is nothing that was spoken about concerning this issue by the Lord during his earthly ministry, nor did Paul receive anything specific from him during his time of direct instruction from him. He's careful to note this so that his words are not intended to be taken as such. Instead, where does it say something that Paul says, I got this directly from the Lord? Can anybody think of a verse? Because he does say it. Galatians 1. Yes, by revelation directly from God. That's right. That wasn't what I was thinking of, but that's very good. I wasn't even thinking that one. Here's what I was thinking of right here. He says, um, uh, where is it? Um, Okay, I've got to go back just a little bit, but I do not want you to be, for we believe this, for this we say to you by the word, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.15. By the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remaining until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Anybody that doesn't believe the rapture does not believe the word of the Lord, because it's very explicit right there. Is absolutely explicit by the word of the Lord. He heard it directly from the Lord. 
just as Burke noted about Galatians, where he says, I received from Revelation. Okay. What you say before communion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he said, there's another one. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. There you go. So directly from the word of the Lord, or this is my opinion, but I think I'm one that has the, uh, so there you go. Okay, he's careful to note this so, so that his words are not intended to be taken as such. Instead, he is giving his personal opinion on the matter for their consideration. Because of this, he says, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. In other words, the Lord demonstrated confidence in Paul to reason out an issue and to make a right, sound judgment on it. Peter could not have made this judgment on this issue. So Peter wasn't selected to do it, okay? The things that Paul wrote, he was able to do. The things that Peter wrote, he was able to do from their own perspectives and their own abilities. This is something that Paul needed to write, and therefore Paul wrote it. What he writes has the full force and authority of that bestowed upon him by the Lord. Being counted trustworthy also implies that he will render a judgment which has no self-seeking motivations or biases but rather will be the intent of bringing glory to Christ and also building up those who receive his instruction. Life application. Paul wrote his letters to the Corinthians who received them and kept them for sound counsel. Eventually, these letters became a part of the Bible. They are the inspired words of God spoken through Paul as doctrine for the church age. Let us consider them with that in mind, never deviating from the precepts he has laid down under this state of inspiration. Okay, go ahead. Next verse. Okay, because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. Okay, sorry about that. I got water all over me. A portion of the words in this verse are probably either a direct quote from the letter he had received verse 7, 1, as I noted a second ago, or are the same basic substance of what he is asked. In other words, I'll probably get to it, so I won't stop there. There was obviously a present distress which affected those in Corinth. Possibly the entire population or Christians in general were affected by this distress, which might have made getting married a difficult proposition at that time. Some believe it was a time of general famine and deprivation. That's Noted in Acts 11, 28, okay? Acts 11, 28. Others believe it was from persecution of Christians by Nero, which was coming around that time. Whatever is being spoken of, they had probably asked Paul, don't you think that it's good because of the present distress for a man to remain as he is? And so what does he do? He just turns the words around. He says, yeah. His response then would follow their words. Yes, I suppose, therefore. Having said this, there's nothing to suggest that this was anything, anything other than a temporary arrangement and not the standard for all times. In other words, Paul is not promoting monasticism. Were there a massive famine in the world today, his words would still ring true. If somebody, you know, in a famine-related area in the world today wrote and said, what do I do, Charlie? What does the Bible say I should do? Say, so, you know, you, you might consider having your daughter stay single. It's a distressful time. It's not going to be healthy for you guys to be worrying about getting married. You see the logic there? He's not promoting monasticism. He's simply saying, they've asked the question. He has turned it around, and he's saying, yeah, I think this is a good idea. 
It is in the prescriptive letters, but you have to understand the context of what he is saying to come to a valid judgment. Because elsewhere, he tells young widows to do what? Married. To get married. Yeah. Okay, so obviously, it is not something that he's saying, you shouldn't be married, and you should stay single, and all. you got to take things in context. They're asking a question. He is responding accordingly. Why would someone want to get involved in a marriage, which is a time of expected happiness and family growth, when neither of those could be expected because of the difficult circumstances. Should things get worse, only sadness and death would result. This isn't one would expect from a nice marriage. Likewise, if it were a time of war or major persecution, would it be wise to get married and spend those moments of life together fleeing, hiding, and possibly dying? No, rather it's better to get through such a major calamity without the additional burdens and heartaches which may come from a marriage. And Paul may have even had on his mind the Hebrew law, which couldn't be imposed on the society of the Greeks, right? What was it that it says, if any of you is fearful, come on out of the ranks. They're about to go into battle. And so they all go out of the ranks because he doesn't want the hearts of the other men to be discouraged. And he says, if any of you has bought a field and you haven't planted that field, come out of the ranks. I'm, I'm making some of this up. I am giving examples. I think it is a field, and I, but I qualify that because I wasn't sure if it was a field and it may have been a house if you bought a house. In other words, if you've done this, and one of the things he says, if any of you has married a young virgin or a young girl, you know, and you haven't enjoyed her yet, I think it's your betrothed to her, whatever it is, then come out of the ranks and spend your time with her. Cheer her up for a season before you become a man of war. Okay, and that may have been, and that's why I said just a minute ago that Paul was selected for a specific reason. He knew all of this in his head. He had all of that information in his head because he was a Pharisee and he knew the law of Moses to the finest detail. It was all in his head. Whereas Peter may have heard that and he may not have heard that. It's not a time of war right now. They're not mustering the Hebrews to go to battle, right? wasn't even a consideration. They were under the Romans. They didn't have to go to battle. The Romans took care of them, right? So Peter wouldn't be thinking about that. John wouldn't be thinking about that. But Paul always had that on his mind. So it's one of those precepts that Paul could pull out and he could say, you know what? God wasn't doing this because we're Jews only. He's doing this as a precept. He's doing this as something to help people to live their lives properly. And that's probably what he was thinking about at that time. That just dawned on me here. But anyway, okay, likewise, I already said that one, I think. Yeah, having noted this, the next few verses will show that even if staying single is a wise choice during such a time of deprivation or hardship, remaining married is expected for those who are already married. Paul is covering each contingency in order and ensuring that proper biblical and Christ-honoring standards will be upheld at all times. Everybody got that? If we go to war now and you're married, you can't get out of your marriage because you're going off to war. She's going to have to suffer without you. That's the precept there, okay? Life application. Oh, you know, they've uh, gotten rid of the draft only for men. I think they've added in women into that too. So, yeah, they're talking about it. I saw an article on it recently, and what's that? So maybe that the wife is going and not the husband. Anyway, just came to mind. Anyway, okay, life application. The context of life around us is an important guide in making big decisions about the future. Would it be wise to invest in a construction company when the housing market had collapsed? Well, of course not. Would it be wise to buy land for a farm during a cycle of severe famine? Not very wise, right? 
Likewise, is it wise to consider getting married in a time when one cannot provide for a spouse and family and give them those things that they need to remain healthy and content? Of course not. It wouldn't make any sense. Just as ensuring proper context when reading the Bible is necessary, so is considering context when evaluating the world in which we live concerning major decisions about the future. Verse 7, 27. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Unmarried, look for a wife. Okay, I guess mine's a little different. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. There you go. That's where we stand. Take care, Friday. Have a great night. Um, let's see here. Well, 727. There's no reason to suppose that Paul's words in verse 27 are a fixed and firm rule, but rather a temporary guide. This is based on the previous verse, which said right here, 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. The present distress, okay? The colon at the end of that verse, used by the translators to signify the thought being presented, shows that verse 27 is based on the present distress. It is also evident from the coming verses. Therefore, based on this, and taking in context the other time, times that Paul speaks of this issue, this is a temporary measure, not a fixed and prescriptive directive. In this temporary state, he asks, are you bound to a wife? His answer, which is based on his previous guidelines and which is confirmed by the word of the Lord himself, is do not seek to be loosed. And his next question is, are you loosed from a wife? This can mean free from a wife, such as being single, or it can mean one who is loosed in a host of other ways, such as death, divorce, before becoming a Christian, divorce because of sexual immorality, or single because of the non-believing spouse departing. All of those were covered earlier, and so on. If in this state, and because of the temporary trials, he says, do not seek a wife. Again, this doesn't mean a suitable woman for a wife might not come along and that she should be shunned. Rather, he is certainly inferring that a man who is caught up in the current dilemma should focus on those circumstances and not be seeking a wife. Who would be in a battle during a war and be looking for a wife at the same time? Who in a time of famine would say, gee, it sure would be nice to find a wife to starve and die with and so forth. This is a time for all, th there is a time for all things, and the current distress that Paul was writing about showed the need for right thinking on the issue of marriage. Life application, and we are done. Seeking a spouse is a good thing, but doing so in a time of hardship or calamity will more likely only increase the hardship and calamity. Therefore, take all things in a proper order and without causing increased suffering in what is already a very tough world. Okay, um, having said that, I don't know if he listens while he's uh, out, but uh, we have a guy that comes to the Bible study, Rick, who is having his 27th anniversary tonight. So, Rick, if you are listening, which he's probably not, but happy anniversary to you, buddy. Anyway, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for our wives, our husbands, for those of us who are married. We thank you that uh, you've given us one another to live in the bonds of marriage and to support each other. and. Lord, if we've had a marriage in the past that didn't work out, we would pray for uh, there to be peace in that uh, broken relationship. But uh, 
that we would pray that uh, our lives would go forward honoring you from this point on and not not uh, making the same mistakes again that we've made in the past, but honoring you with our life and all things. And we can't control everything that happens in this life, Lord. You know that and you understand these things, but help us to the best of our ability to be obedient to your word. And we can only do that by knowing your word. So help us to be in your word and to learn it properly in context and to apply it to our lives as we should. Help us in this, Lord. We're weak and we're failing, but you are strong. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.